Well, I just uh, want you to know that uh, Gerald and I were looking at each other when Mike was telling his story about getting in the wrong vehicle because I just ran out between services to, to run back home, uh, pick up one of my kids who had uh, slept in for the first service and was coming to the second and third, and uh, I uh, jumped. I started to jump in Gerald's car which looks exactly the same as my car, uh, except that Gerald was in the car, so that kind of... <laughs> he was like, are, are we doing something fun, Pastor Bill? <clears throat> so, um, yeah, thanks, Gerald, for being kind to me. <laughs> well, we're going to read this morning from the Gospel of Mark. This is God's Word for us today. This is uh, the Word of God that He has given to us. This is not our... What we're worshiping, this is the guidebook. This is the handbook. This uh, helps us know who God is and who we are and um, gives us the strength to, to follow. So uh, we're opening up to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we're going to read verses 53 through 72. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. Listen closely. This is God's word for us today. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then Son stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went away into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Friends, 
This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for how it challenges us, how it inspires us, how it teaches us. We pray that today you will be honored in what is said, in what is thought, in what is done here today as we interact with your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled 24 Hours at Change the world, and we're focusing on that last 24 hours of Jesus' life. It's what the four gospel writers uh, spent a quarter of the entire gospels focused on just this last 24 hours. They believed it was the most important 24 hours that human history has ever encountered, and I believe it as well. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the Last Supper. We saw that how it was an object lesson that teaches us that we are slaves, but we, we have been slaves, but we've been brought to freedom. And just the, the power of that reality. Last week we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane and the idea of Jesus being fully submitted to God's will and being willing to say, your will be done, not mine. And that's what happened. Today we've read two stories that have to do with fear. The first is Peter's personal fear which leads to his denial of Christ three times. And the second is the fear that the Sanhedrin has over who this Jesus guy is, and so they end up condemning him. But before we get to that place where where that happened, where Jesus was condemned and where Peter denied him, uh, I just want to show you a short clip from the 24 Hours to Change the World video. This is a uh, – it's always good to let you see more of the Holy Land if if you can – uh, if it's possible. And this is a great clip that shows the route taken Bound, from the Garden Jesus of Gethsemane back across the to Valley, Caiaphas' back up house. to Mount Zion, to the high priest's home. That's all right. <laughs> That's fine. Bound, Jesus is led back across the Kidron Valley and back up to Mount Zion, to the high priest's home. Now, while in Jerusalem, I found it helpful to make this journey myself. It was about a 20-minute walk for me, and going uphill, it left me winded. Let's get a sense of what this walk was like. This is the path that Jesus would have taken as uh, he was led away from the Garden of Gethsemane and led to the place where he would be tried by the Sanhedrin at night. And so we're on our way up to the city of Zion, and we are um, passing through the Kidron Valley and to the church of St. Peter Galicantu. So this is the path. We've just walked through the Kidron Valley where Jesus would have been led sometime after midnight with the guards from the temple with their torches and he would have been taking up here, taken up here. The, the disciples all had fled by this time. And when he comes up the Kidron Valley, he comes up the path from the Kidron Valley, he comes out right here at the southern wall of the temple where he'd taught many times and near the teaching steps where he had uh, addressed the disciples and where he had predicted the downfall of Jerusalem. And he continued the journey up the pathway to the lower city of David and finally to the upper city of David to the house of high priest Caiaphas. It was here that the Sanhedrin was meeting by night so as to not anger the crowds. It was in secret in order to silence Jesus once and for all. Now the old Roman road still stands here, the Roman steps and pilgrims who come this way often will take off their shoes so as to walk barefoot on the path that Jesus was walking on to remember and to mark that last leg of his journey to the high priest's house. And somehow as I feel these large Roman stones under my feet, I feel myself identifying 
really even just wondering, what was Jesus thinking? What was he feeling? Was he winded as I am after making this journey? Was he, was he afraid? Or was he trusting once more in the God who would deliver him? Just gives you a little taste there of what it's like to be in the Holy Land. That's the trip that Jesus makes from the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, not on a bright, sunny day like that, but in the middle of the night with torches, with guards who uh, have him shackled and who are bringing him to Caiaphas's house. Scary moment. Scary moment. We, uh, we all are folks who experience fear at one point or another. Um, and sometimes we try to react to that. Sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's not. I heard a, heard a little joke about an older lady who was scared of flying. And uh, her children said, uh, come on, Mom, we fly all the time. This is uh, not a big deal. And she's no, no, I'm, I'm worried, I'm worried. So they, they hired this actuary to come and tell her the statistics. And so this guy comes by and he, he gives her the numbers. I don't know, they were something huge like, ma'am, it's, you know, one in 500 million chance that there's a, a bomb on an airplane when you're on an airplane. And no, not good enough. And he goes, well, there's, there's one in, in 100 billion chance that there'll be two people with bombs on in the airplane that you're on if you're ever on one. She thought about that. She went, huh. So she decided that she would fly again and she'd be really proactive. And from that point on, she always flew with a bomb with her. <laughs> so the numbers, all right, okay. We, uh, we're scared sometimes and um, we try to respond to that fear, don't we? We try to overcome it. Peter attempted to overcome his fear. He, uh, he tries to live up to the boast that he has that, that even if all the other disciples will desert Jesus, he will not. And he's the only disciple who follows Jesus on that same path that you just saw there across the Kidron Valley. Of course, at night, without a torch, sneaking behind in the dark. I mean, this is a brave thing for this guy to do. He's, he's not right there with the, um, with the, uh, the guards and, and everything but he's right behind. He's sticking close, and he actually goes right into the courtyard of Caiaphas's house. He sits there around the fire with the servants and with the soldiers. He is incredibly brave by doing this. But in that place of pretty high tension and pretty high fear, he loses it. He loses his nerve. He fails miserably in a panic of fear that he too might be tried and arrested, tried, uh, harmed in some way. He ends up denying Christ to the very servants and soldiers who are sitting around him at the fire. He denies the Messiah to save his skin. We might think, come on, didn't he know? Shouldn't he have been more brave? But you know, i got to be honest and say, boy, have there been times in my life when I haven't been completely honest because I'm scared? How about you? Have there been moments when you say, boy, I don't, I don't want to go there. It might even be worth lying to get out of that one. Peter, I think, is like a, most of us. He's incredibly tempted when his own personal safety is at stake to try to get out of it. We try to get out of things. Sometimes it's not our physical safety. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it, it might be a, an issue of acceptance. 
you know, boy, if, I, uh, if I'm honest about what I really think here, folks maybe won't accept me. Or I might miss out on this opportunity, or I might miss out on this friendship if, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm not honest here. And so we shrink away, or we don't tell the truth, or we somehow step aside because of our fear. That's on the personal level. But the same thing happens on a communal level sometimes. Whole groups of people become scared of a person or persons or something like that and, and step away from that person or persons. I, that's what happens in Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. It's fear on the communal level. The Sanhedrin is the ultimate ruling body of the Jewish people. This is like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. There are 71 elders in the, San, uh, the Sanhedrin, scribes who are like the, the biblical scholars, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then the high priest himself. And no one, I guarantee you, kept the law more strictly than these folks. No one was more aware of what the Hebrew Scriptures said and what was going on than the, than the men in the Sanhedrin. If anyone was supposed to bring justice, if anyone was supposed to make sure that things were right, it would be these guys. And yet, the irony is that when the God they meant to serve by being holy and following the law, when that God came to earth to draw the people of the world to him, to redeem us, to make things whole and right, when that God showed up, they totally missed it. Totally, totally missed it. Now we know some of them must have gotten it later because we find out what happens in this secret court. And Jesus probably isn't the one that told, although I suppose it could have come out after he was raised from the dead. But it's more likely that someone there, maybe Nicodemus, who we know later, uh, just a, a few hours later, a few, uh, later, about 24 hours later, takes Jesus' body and helps Joseph of Arimathea bury it, which means he's, he, as a, as an, a high person uh, in, in that court, is touching a dead body at a holy religious time of the year, which means he is excluded from Passover, the most important religious ceremony of the year. His taking care of Jesus shows a certain devotion. So somehow, somebody, maybe Nicodemus, somebody, somebody else, tells us what's going on in this high court. God comes in human flesh, and yet they miss it. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And though the world was made by him, it didn't recognize him. God himself shows up, and the world does not recognize him. Have you, uh, have you ever seen Undercover Boss? Reality show, it's a big, a couple years ago. I think it might still be on. And uh, they basically get the CEO from a company to come and, you know, like 7-Eleven or something like that, and they work, and there they are, you know, they're selling stuff at the counter, and they're, uh, you know, scrubbing bathrooms and floors and things like that. And it's always great when one of the employees is kind of talking to the camera on the side saying, you know, this guy, I, I don't think I'd hire him again. He's really bad at this job, you know. And you know they're going to be later sitting in front of the same person going, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're the CEO, <laughs> how uncomfortable that is. And uh, so, in in a sense, what God does here with humanity is is like a giant version of Undercover Boss. God shows up on earth. And 
We don't recognize him. Most of the folks who interacted with him did not recognize him. The holy people, the religious people, the pious people, the people who are supposed to recognize him didn't recognize him. In fact, it wasn't the sinners who condemned Jesus. It was the spiritual people. It was the, the, the good Sanhedrin uh, uh, synagogue goers. That's who it was. We call them church goers today. Back then they called them synagogue goers. I don't really know that. I just... It was people who showed up religiously. They were serious about their faith. And they're the ones that condemned Jesus. In fact, they're so nervous about this guy that they conduct an illegal trial to frame an innocent man. How do we know it's illegal? Because the Sanhedrin was uh, required to meet during the day. When did they meet? They met at night. The Sanhedrin was required to meet inside the temple. Where did they meet? They met outside the temple at Caiaphas' house. The Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet during a religious holiday. When did they meet? They met right, right in the middle of Passover. I mean, these guys had just come from their Passover meal. And the next day, the high priest is going to go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the lamb that's been sacrificed and ask for forgiveness for the whole nation. I mean, they are in the middle of their biggest ceremony And this is when they have this trial. Why? Because they're scared. They're scared that people are going to riot if they know that they're putting Jesus on trial. Because Jesus Jesus is pretty famous at this point. He's pretty popular. He's the guy that goes around and heals people. The crowd liked that. They liked it so much that they wanted to make him king. And this is what the, 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 the Sanhedrin is scared of. See, when you raise people from the dead like what just happened to Lazarus like a week or so before, that scares the people in power. You know, if somebody was raised from the dead around here, we'd all be terrified. But if we were in charge of keeping the peace around here, we'd really be terrified. And that's where these guys are. They're terrified. In fact, here's the great quote from John chapter 11, 48 through 50. This is the, 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 the um, high priest uh, talking If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. You get what they're saying? They're saying, this guy's like scary. Let's just get him out of the way. We can do that. We can sacrifice this guy. It'll save everyone else. Why, why will it save everyone else? Because they're scared of losing their own personal power. I mean, this, Jesus would, seems to have more power than they do. So there's a personal thing. We're scared of losing our place, but also we're scared of losing our nation. The Romans will come in and take our place and our nation. What are they saying there? They're scared that a giant insurrection will come. These people will rise up and say, let's make Jesus king. And what will the Romans do to that? The occupying force. They'll be like, hmm, king? Somebody wants to be king? Let's squelch that. Ironically, only 35 or so years later, the Romans came in, tore Jerusalem right to the ground because of insurrections. The Sanhedrin was right to be scared, weren't they? Jesus was a dangerous guy. He was somebody that they knew could make trouble for them. They, as a group, were scared. They were fearful of another person or another group 
And this is a normal thing, friends. We've seen this over and over again in society. You know, if you go back 120, 130 years, I have, I come, I'm half Irish. And when my relatives came over from Ireland, you know, they were getting off the boat and experiencing the, the same persecution that a lot of immigrants have experienced over the years. If you're the latest wave of people to come in, everybody who's already there is saying, you're going to take away our jobs. You're scary people. Happened to the Irish, happened to the Italians, happened to a lot of people. We think of the Jim Crow laws that were put in place to try to keep African Americans down, to stop them from being able to vote or stop them from being able to have power. Why? Because of fear. Fear on the part of a controlling group not wanting to lose power to somebody else. We saw that in the apartheid that happened in South Africa. We've seen it over and over again. We see it in people now who are fearful of uh, Mexican immigrants, that type of thing. Both personally and communally, we are constantly tempted by fear. And we are constantly tempted by fear to do what? To do despicable things. Really, we are. To lie, to cheat, to steal, to put other people down. I think about students at school, if somebody's being mocked, do you stand up for that person? Well, you might, and that's great. But if you don't, you'd be pretty normal. Because of the fear, I too might be mocked. I too might be ostracized by my peers, so you step back. Or let's say someone, uh, like a neo-Nazi or somebody starts, starts uh, speaking. People want to say, shut that person up. We want to say that because we feel, that's terrible, what they're saying. But, but do we really want to violate freedom of speech? See, it's tempting to shut it down. We can let what they say say, and it can... The vast majority of people will say that's, that's garbage, which it is. But we don't want to violate freedom of speech, do we? We want to take the high road to do the right thing and let, let the crazies off to the side. You know, um, Jesus was, as I said, condemned by the righteous because of fear. And this time as we prepare for Easter, this time of Lent, as we think about what are the fears that we're tempted to, to condemn other people for? What, what, are we, what are we tempted even by a church to do in order, because we're scared, because we're nervous about something? How might the righteous today be tempted by fear to advocate wrong? I'm going to get dangerous here. I'm going to talk about homosexuality. As a church... We're tempted in two ways by this, which is changing the face of America right now. One way is, is we're tempted to say, we don't want to be the people who are the naysayers, the negative people. We don't want to be people who are known for saying, you're not supposed to live a homosexual lifestyle. So we say, we're, we're scared of, of being that. So, so just do what you want. Live how you want. On the other hand, we're scared of being the people who would say, you know what? 
we, uh, we think that you should not live that way. And the more we think about it, we think that you're wrong and that you're evil and that you are condemned for doing that. And we tell people our opinion, but we do it in a nasty way. Do you see how both of those ways are operating in fear? We're scared that you might be accepted by society and that we believe the Bible teaches a certain thing, but we're, we're scared that society is moving too fast this way, so we're going we're gonna to speak out against it, and we're going to speak out in a really negative way, and you're not going to feel love from us at all. Or we're scared that we're going to miss the boat here, that we're going to be judged by our society, so we're just going to open up the floodgates and see what, do whatever you want. See, either, way of the, either side of that is about fear. And the challenge for us is to find truth. The Bible says Jesus came to the world full of grace and truth. And we want to speak truth, but we want to speak it with grace. And so we want to absolutely be clear that the Bible does say that homosexual practice is inappropriate. But you know what? We want to say that from a humble place. Because guess what? The Bible also says that heterosexual activity outside of marriage is wrong as well. And I, I'm willing to bet that there's probably someone here who's gay. And there's probably a lot of people here who are heterosexual. And there's probably a lot of people here who have not been living necessarily the way God wants them to. Or at least at some point in their lives have not lived the way God wants them to. We always have to act in humbleness. And we always have to speak the truth, but we have to speak it with grace. See, what the homosexual person needs to hear is that they are a person made in the image of God and absolutely loved by God and that that's the first thing that God feels about them. Friends, it, this is, see, the high road, the high road is a road that's not very well traveled. There ain't too many people on the high road. The high road says, speak truth, but speak it with humility and grace, recognizing your own fault. And that's where we need to be. And we need to be about it first, about our own things. Because I've got junk in my life, and you've got junk in your life. And we need to be honest about that before we go around condemning others. But we also need, out of love, to be truthful with each other. What does the Bible call us to it calls us to holy living on all these levels. Why? Because that's God's best for us. And we, we want to live God's best for us. We don't want to, to tell anybody, just live the way you want, because all of our hearts are, are deceived. All of us are, are tempted by things which, which we think sound pretty good, but which lead to death. Sometimes groups are tempted by fear, to respond to a person or persons in a way that does not express to them the love and the grace, but expresses to them fear and condemnation and hatred. Well, how do we respond to this? How do we rise above this fear? How do we rise above these things which tempt us by fear? I think one of the most powerful ways is to be reminded of who we're dealing with. When I go to the doctor, 
I go in and I look at the, the certificate on the wall, you know. And if the certificate says, you know, I got this through the internet that I'm a doctor, I'm a little nervous. But if it says, I went to Cornell or something, I'm like, okay, great. This person knows what they're talking about, right? If, why does the doctor put his or her certificate on the wall? To kind of reassure you, you know, they're legit. And that, this is what we find that God does for us in, in these last 24 hours of Jesus' life. He comes in the flesh and he reassures us with some amazing claims that he makes in front of the Sanhedrin. Why? So that we will know who he truly is, and in knowing who he truly is, we will, be, we will realize that God being on our side, there's nothing we have to fear. Nothing. Nothing. So here's what Jesus says, and I want us to just look at it. Remember when the high priest says to him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus, who has been silent for all the accusations beforehand, he comes out and he says these words, I am... And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of the Holy One. Now, you and I might be like, well, that was kind of a religious answer. I mean, what does that mean? What was their response? They tore their clothes. They said, you've heard the blasphemy. Is he to be condemned? And they all condemn him. What's going on here? How clear of an answer has Jesus given them? I want to contend that it was incredibly clear. Incredibly clear answer. Here's what he says. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus starts out by saying, I am. That's straight out of Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is at the burning bush and Moses is talking to God and and he says, God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So then when Jesus says to the question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed Ones? He says, I am. They're all like, whoa. See, the normal Aramaic would just be, uh, 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 it would just be, I am he. But Jesus doesn't say that. In the Greek, he says this. He says, ego eimi. You know what that means? It means literally, I, I am. If uh, you're really proud of something and somebody walks in here and says, who's responsible for this? You might say, I am. Yeah. How would we write that? I with like an underline or a bold? I am. In the Greek, a me means I am. But ego a me means I am. I am. Like I'm the one. And that's what Jesus says to them. He says to them, I am. And they get it. He's he's claiming the same thing as God here. The next thing he says is, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is right out of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll read it to you. This is Daniel writing. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you hear that? And then here's what it says about that one. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, when these guys in the Sanhedrin said, and you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory, they were like, whoa, Daniel 7. And what's he saying? He's saying, I am. And I'm coming on clouds of glory. You're going to see it. I'm going to be king forever. I'm the one. And just to really drive it home, he ends with this statement. Seated at the right hand of the mighty one. He says, you will see me coming. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Seated at the right hand of the mighty one. Not only does he say, I am, just like God. Not only does he directly attribute to himself a scripture that says that he'll be worshipped and he'll be king forever. But then he, he says, this seated at the right hand of the mighty one, which is right out of Psalm 110. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Do you think the guys in the Sanhedrin recognized? They're being called the enemies who are at the footstool. At his feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. They were like, Whoa. They ripped their clothes. He was saying, I am God. He was saying it very clearly to them. And they responded by saying, No way. By the way, Melchizedek is this mysterious Old Testament priest. He's a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Abraham, the greatest Jewish patriarch, came to Melchizedek and tithed to him, gave him one-tenth of everything that he had. And guess what Melchizedek gave to Abraham? Bread and wine. Isn't that cool? Do you get it? Jesus is attributing to himself. He's saying, I'm the one in Psalm 110. And I'm the one that will give you bread and wine, just like Melchizedek. And don't we see right there the reality of communion? That's amazing. How clear of an answer did Jesus give? Well, I don't know if any of you noticed, but it's March Madness. And uh, some of us have been losing a lot of sleep. And if I were to say to you, are you a Syracuse fan or a Dayton fan? And you were to say to me, I bleed orange. Would that be a clear answer? Yes, it would. It would also be a very sad day. Well, it is a sad day. Some of us are very sad. Okay. If I was to say to you, are you a UK fan or are you a Louisville fan? And you said, go Big Blue. Have you made yourself clear? Yes, you have. If you know college basketball, you're a UK fan. I'm a UK fan too. Still hope. Army or Marines, and you said Semper Fidelis, Semper Fi, we'd know. Marines, right? Nike or Adidas, and you said, just do it. We'd know, wouldn't we? You're Nike, okay? That's how clear it was, what Jesus says to them. In a trial in which they could have proven nothing if he kept his mouth shut, Jesus intentionally, boldly claims he is God in the flesh. He does it. In the last 24 hours of his life, if his claims about himself 
are, are true, which I believe they are, then God is radically on our side and we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Because God has shown up in the flesh. And look, he said some crazy things. A lot of people want to tell you, Jesus is just a nice, good, moral teacher, you know? That's just good moral stuff that he taught. And we should listen to him, but you Christians are all crazy when you start saying he's God. Yeah, but would a good moral teacher say to you, I'm God, I'm going to be worshipped, I'm going to be king of a kingdom that lasts forever? Would that be what, if, if somebody said that to you, they'd be lying, wouldn't they? Or they'd be crazy. And either one of those is not really about a good moral teacher. But what if they were actually right? C.S. Lewis called this liar, lunatic, or Lord. He was either lying, he was a lunatic, or he actually was Lord. He is Lord. And I want to suggest to you that's exactly who Jesus is. Friends, we're all tempted, all tempted by fear every single day. Personal fear, corporate fear. We're all tempted to not take the high road. We're all tempted to let that fear run us in one direction or another. And the reality is, God, because he's God and he's on our side and he's great and awesome, he can give us what we need. The good news is, Peter was forgiven. The good news is when he was on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he meant the Sanhedrin too. We're all forgiven. God is gracious to us. And the fear that we have is not something that has to rule us. In the last 24 hours of his life, Jesus assured us of who he really was, Lord of all. Lord of all. And because of that, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you give us truth about who you are. You remind us, even Jesus, in the last 24 hours of your life, you reminded us who you really were. You made an incredible statement about yourself. And when we realize who we're dealing with, the living God, then whatever fear we have, Lord, we know that you can help us overcome it. And God, forgive us when we just try to do it on our own. We embrace the good news that this is not about us trying harder. It's about you being released in us in the power of your spirit. And so, God, we just come to you. We come to you today and we say, God, we're scared about something. There's something we're scared about. Whether it's on behalf of our society or our church or in our own individual lives, we're scared about something. And God, we pray today that you will give us the grace and the strength in a way that only you, God, can do. And that we will embrace that, we will let that flow into us, and we will not give in to fear. We will take the high road, even though it is very little traveled. We will take the high road. And we will follow you out of fear into life. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.